turn myself on. All right. I hope you had a good lunch break, um, and I'm also grateful that the air has cleared um, compared to earlier this morning, so you could go out. How are you doing after all this morning's, some little bits of meditation and teachings in between, and lunch break? Any comments, questions before we start? Please. One in the back. <clears throat> Jack, I've always wondered. This is the second one of these that you've taught that I've been to. And 
It's not a great question, but I'm just curious. In my reading of the sutras, and by the way, I'm no scholar, I never saw anything about the Abhidhamma mentioned. And so I wonder where that comes from. Is that a result of the 500-year period after the Buddha's death of the flowering of Buddhism? Is that something that Nagarjuna was involved in? Is it something that's written about somewhere else? I mean, I never, I never understood what that was exactly, except for the chain of dependent origination. So for those who <clears throat> might not understand that question, because it comes from an understanding of Buddhist history and texts and so forth, sometimes the word Buddhist psychology has been used to describe one part of Buddhist teachings called the Abhidhamma or Abhidharma, <clears throat> which is the third of three sections of the ancient Buddhist texts. One section is the lives of the monks and nuns and the way they should live and a whole thing about community and so forth. A second, which is the biggest section, the sutras, um, are either the teachings that were given by the Buddha or in greater majority are records of his of dialogues where the Buddha would be wandering and someone would come up and say, um, I just lost my business or I met this yogi who said that if I practice in this way I'll get enlightened or um, uh, my child just died, help me. And in those dialogues, or I'm a, I'm a prince, I'm in the kingdom next door, wants to make war on us, what should I do? So a good part of those texts are his responses to people's concerns or sufferings or possibilities. And then the third group called the Abhidhamma or Abhidharma <clears throat> is a very complex mapping of the different possible states of mind. Remember what I read from those 500 feelings? Well, the Abhidhamma has 108 different states of mind and 52 mental factors and you know, 28 different kinds of experiences of elements in the body and the senses. And it maps all these out and then does fancy, um, quite complex maps of the relationship in one moment of how a moment of perception arises with feeling and intention and uh, <clears throat> consciousness um, and history and response and so forth. So my, my best understanding is that that third section that you ask about was not written down until the third great council or one of the great councils of the Buddha, uh, Buddhist followings that happened several hundred years after the death of the Buddha. And the story that's told is that those were teachings that the Buddha gave by going up to heaven when he was uh, still alive and teaching his mother who had died and given, him all these given her all these special teachings. And then she later recited them to the monks who were in that third century after his death and they wrote them down. Could be, but it could also be that they combed through the teachings and said, let's make this more systematic. And they were all, they all like to make lists. The three characteristics and the four noble truths and the five spiritual faculties 
and the six paramitas and the seven factors of enlightenment and the you know, 12 links of the dependent origination and so forth. They were list makers. And it, it was an oral tradition, so it made it easier to write down. <clears throat> so this was like, Abhidhamma's like list makers gone berserk, basically, with huge numbers of complex lists. Um, so apparently it was written down several centuries later. And in some places it's considered the highest teachings, um, and in others, it's not. <clears throat> in others, it's considered derivative of the earlier teachings. But, of course, people always have opinions about things. And um, so when you go into the Buddhist temples and the scholars and so forth, they are, shocking to say, sometimes rather opinionated. And they have their views about when and where and what's more important and so forth, not unlike the rest of us. So um, that's the historical <clears throat> record as far as I know. <clears throat> what we're working with today is a very different meaning of the word Buddhist psychology, taking the compass of the teachings as a whole and looking at what are the essential principles as a science of mind or psychology and how we might employ them and use them in, in uh, human happiness and human suffering. So thanks for that question. Now there's, uh, in the front, there's a, a question or two people next to each other. They probably have, <clears throat> and then we'll, then we'll, Go on, please. Today and, uh, and in these years, uh, it seems to me that you uh, grasp the keys to, uh, or maybe, to help the Western society recover. Uh, I was wondering in this age and in this place where we find uh, the wealth of the world, as we know it, Facebook, Yahoo, uh, more than Yahoo Google today, uh, Amazon, uh, Apple, all those companies, it seems to me, they would uh, deeply benefit from uh, being infused by your thoughts. And uh, today, the new generation, they, they are driven, their mind, their souls, by those uh, players. How could you uh, help these, uh, these players to be infused with your words, with your wisdom? Hmm. <clears throat> I just came back from being in China for a few weeks. And one of the things that's true in China, um, certainly on the coast, which is sort of the wealthiest part, and I was in Shanghai and Beijing and then a couple other places in Jiangxi province and so forth, is that now that many parts of China have become much wealthier and quite prosperous, and it's kind of extraordinary to see in one generation from primarily bicycles and little low buildings to sky rises and um, uh, skyscrapers, um, a road system that's really the equivalent of our superhighways around the country, people driving great big SUVs and, you know, their Mercedes and their BMWs and their fancy cars. It's, it's become very modern in a very short time and tremendous amount of wealth in parts of China anyway. And people are recognizing that, all right, I have money. What else is there? I'm not so happy in some cases. And there's a kind of stress both in the society and especially among young people. Um, I was in Singapore and then talking with people from Korea. There's a lot of suicide among young people because with one child, parents are pushing them to succeed and do well and so forth. And the poor kids, you know, feel like they're being oppressed in some way by expectations. Um, so what I found in China was 
And just as we talked about at the very beginning, that the outer developments now aren't enough. And there is at least some seeds of growing interest in reclaiming these traditions. And the little project I have is called Returning the Treasure, bringing things back to temples and places like that. Um, your question points to the fact that we could use this here in this culture and certainly on the online world from all those big companies. They're interested. I've done trainings for the top executives, for example, at Salesforce, you know, which is a very big um, Google has Search Inside Yourself, and I've done stuff with Meng, who's one of the people that started a big kind of program of mindfulness through Google. I've done training for the very highest level of people at Apple. Um, I think two things to say. One is that it's actually hard to bring these values and these principles fully alive in an intense business environment. Um, That the way capitalism is currently constructed and the way the markets are and all of that, um, that there's an enormous pressure to make money as fast as you can and bottom line. And if you don't, you're thrown out, basically. The shareholders or someone will throw you out. And so I found I've worked with the CEOs of some of the top companies in America, a handful of them anyway, that they're actually much more amenable to this when they retire. But when they're actually doing it, it's so intense. And not so for all of them. Some of them need it in the middle. And there's a YouTube if you're interested in this. I had a, a conference and a long conversation with Bill Ford, who runs Ford Motors, which, um, and he called in whatever it was, 2008, when the economy was melting down for the Great Recession. And he said, I can't sleep. Um, He'd been doing Buddhist practice for quite a while. Um, I'm afraid that we're going to lose the whole industry, including my grandfather's company on my watch. Do you have anything that could help? And so he began to do a much deeper mindfulness training, and it helped him a lot. And he describes this in that YouTube thing. But that's a kind of unusual that he's really still in the saddle. Um, So one is that people are so so at the mercy of the market forces in business that it's a little bit... Yes, they put mindfulness and it's a nice little gloss on things, but to have it really be incorporated is going to be longer. And I think that the, the big change is taking place because we now have social and emotional learning and mindfulness training in schools. And that as kids learn this from early, it yes, the business schools are doing it. And I got a call from Stanford Business School not, you know, some years ago from the dean, one dean and from a senior professor who said, could you come down and help us? I said, what do you want? Said, well, we get the most accomplished students in the country, really fantastic students, but they're also very ambitious. And they come here and they're immediately trying to figure out what company they'll work for and what their, what their internship will be. And they're envisioning how they're going to get paid and then how it's going to grow and how they'll make a fortune in Silicon Valley, people's dreams. And by the time two years are over, they kind of lose touch with themselves. They're so driven. And I listened and I said, so what you're asking for is something like soul retrieval? He said, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what we need. So I went down to Stanford Business School and did a training for a weekend with some other CEO friends and things like that. 
Um, so they're beginning to put it in, but it would have to be really woven into that curriculum. And I think the place that it really matters is with younger children. The other thing is that I'm involved with a bunch of neuroscientists, and we are looking at ways to actually develop technological products, virtual reality, augmented reality things, that train people in compassion, um, which seems possible and really looking at the research and things like that. So it's very early in the game, but what's true is we have this technological world and it's rewiring our kids' brains. I mean, two-year-olds, they don't read a book, they swipe a regular book to see if the pictures will change, you know, because they've got their iPad from they when they were in the crib or whatever it was. And um, in some ways, it's very creative. And in other ways, um, well, when we have our teen retreats here, I'm just going on and on because it's an interesting question. When we have our retreats for teens, one of the most important rituals and the most transformative things is that as the retreat starts, we have a big basket and a particular special chant that we do and kind of a ritual. And then the teens will each place their smartphone into the basket for a week. And it's a little like surgery. Some anesthesia is needed because it's so wet. I mean, they sleep with it under their pillow, you know. It's so part of their lives. And what does it mean to have a week's experience where you're not online all the time? So your question points to a lot of very, very interesting things. Um, And I think... I do think that with all the research that mindfulness and so forth is growing and it will make a difference in our culture and it's up against some other very, very big forces. So, but, but those are the, they're interesting things. <clears throat> One last question. Um, so, Mike, I work with people with depression mm-hmm. and most have a practice, a sitting practice. Mm-hmm. But what they describe to me is more of uh, resistance, like a dissociation practice. Let me just stay on the breath so I don't feel. So mm-hmm. when you were talking about the feeling foundation of mindfulness and tolerating, what do you suggest when they're so afraid of feeling? Hmm. Well, there's a couple of things. First, which you probably know, um, it would be worth reading stuff from folks like Zindel Siegel, who um, has written a lot about using... MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, with depression. Um, Because also the stories that people tell are really critical, as you would know working with that. Um, For me, when somebody comes who can't tolerate their feelings, and this really goes to what we'll talk about in a little bit, in part what we're talking about is trauma. Because that's the the origin of most of those feelings. Um, And good trauma work... Um, requires, well, there's a lot of intelligence that's needed because there's, there's bad trauma work out there, but good trauma work recognizes that um, the trauma is carried in the body and in the nervous system as well as with emotions and stories. But before you can approach it without re-traumatizing people, you need to help them find resources of well-being and so the very first thing, and the same for depression and trauma, is for them to find whatever gives them even a little glimmer of well-being. And it might be physical, your feet on the floor, what's the safest place in your body, what posture works for you, how can you calm yourself a little. Or if they can't do that, it might be, can you remember a time in your life when you felt safe and loved? 
maybe at your grandmother's, you know, or at your uncle's farm, or when you were something, and then let that image and that whole scene and memory come to you, and feel what that's like in your body. All right, now let's approach the anxiety that's there with the depression, or let's approach the, the grief, but only a little bit, so it doesn't overwhelm you. And now go back, okay, you felt a little, a few tears, it's, it's scary. Let's do a little bit of it, name it. All right, now come back, feel your feet and grounded, or remember your grandmother or whatever it happens to be, and feel the well-being, and kind of um, go back and forth so that there's a basis for approaching this, what's difficult. And you can do it a little step at a time. And that's part of the training of increasing that window of tolerance. Um, I also think, you know, some of it is, people are smart. And, I mean, we're also fools, but Zen Master Ryokan wrote, Japan's most beloved poet, last year a foolish monk, this year no change, right? So we're, we're both. But people are smart in the sense that um, you can explain to them that part of what keeps your depression locked in is the inability to tolerate certain feelings of loneliness or anxiety or emptiness or whatever it happens to be, uh, unworthiness. And that it's possible not only to learn to tolerate them, but in holding them then they can transform. And here let's do a little practice to learn to do it um, step by step. So I'm very respectful of resistance, which is related to the other questions we've had. It's there because it's trying to protect us. And so you want to say, this has been of value, you know, and it's helped you. And now you can say, thank you for trying to protect me. And let's see if we can expand who we are beyond the fears of it. I, I don't know if that's helpful. but All right. So why don't we sit for five minutes and just kind of let the words pass and reconnect with the stillness. Come back gently to your own breath and body, just here and now.
as you sense the breath, let the sounds and sensations and other experiences that are in the background rise and fall like waves of the ocean. And when one of the waves becomes strong, then turn your loving awareness toward that as if to bow to it, acknowledge and name it gently and feel it move through the body and mind as a wave. And when it's past or you're at ease with it, then again feel the breath.
So we will do some other practices this afternoon, an equanimity practice, perhaps a We'll do a forgiveness practice. We'll do a couple of other practices and just to start here. Hmm. So in Western psychology, there's so much emphasis on psychopathology, you know, and seeing the, the medical model, what's your diagnosis and so forth, certainly in clinical psychology. And you know where clinical psychology came from, perhaps worth saying, is that before World War II, most of psychology was research psychology. But then when all the troops came back who were shell-shocked and with uh, trauma, there weren't enough psychiatrists to go around, and the field of clinical psychology grew, actually, in response to um, the veterans coming back. Um, and again, it's been mostly oriented toward um, pathology and, and diagnosing people and so forth. Um, and one of the things that's noteworthy both in psychiatry and psychology is that while it's called the mental health field, there's almost no focus on mental health. It's all on mental disorder. You go in and you train and learn about all these disorders. Um, and that's really the emphasis of it. So you have handed out to you today um, a paper that has a map from Buddhist psychology of mental health. And here is um, how to understand it. On the left-hand side are all the things that make up our human experience. Sights, sounds, tastes, smells, bodily perceptions, and mental perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and intuitions. Our six senses, the mind is considered a sixth sense door because it knows thoughts and feelings. Does anybody have anything other than this in their life? Raise your hand. You can have your money back. All right, so this was, this was actually taught in relationship. There was a kind of famous uh, dialogue the Buddha had with somebody about the world and the Buddha said, I'll teach you what the world is made of, what your world is made of, and it's made of these six things. Sight, sound, taste, smell, bodily perception, and mental perception. Then along with these six things, if you look on the right-hand side, um, is the six flavors of consciousness that arise with them eye and ear and nose, tongue, body, consciousness, and so forth. Which is to say, for us to experience something, there's both the sense experience and the consciousness which knows it. Consciousness is called the knowing faculty. So if you have somebody who just died, and you're there with their body, it's still warm. Their eyes are open, a light hits the retina, probably neural firing going to the you know visual cortex in the brain, But there's something missing, which is consciousness. So they're not seeing anything, even though all the physical things are happening. What's needed for us to have our human experience is sense experience and the consciousness which receives it. That's pretty clear? Okay. Then it turns out that between the sense experience and the consciousness 
is a whole array of mental states. Um, and if we take them from that question that was asked before about the Abhidharma, Abhidhamma, and so forth, um, this list comes from the 52 most common mental states. And what the mental states are is they determine the relationship of consciousness to the experience. So there are some common ones that are there in most every moment, a feeling tone and so forth. But most of them, of the 52, are divided into two halves, the healthy side and the unhealthy side. The unhealthy side, which is described as the three roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is sort of an old-time Victorian language a little bit, what it means is that we have a sight or a sound, and with greed we attach and we want more of it and we grasp it. With hatred, there's aversion, fear, we push it away, we don't want to experience it. And delusion, we don't see it clearly, we space out or we're in some other place. And when we're reacting to experience from these three roots, they give rise to worry, envy, rigidity, agitation, grasping, self-centeredness, fear, avarice, shamelessness, dullness, closed-mindedness, confusion, misreception, all these kind of unhealthy states. And the stronger they are, the greater the mental distress. So that you could read the whole DSM listing of mental problems, and they are when worry turns you know, into paranoia and fear, um, or delusion turns into, you know, whether it's delusions of grandeur or grandeur or delusions of seeing things that aren't here, psych, you know, <clears throat> um, psychiatric um, problems of, of great delusions where greed gives rise to not only avarice but then to addiction. Um, uh, shamelessness, sociopathy, um, confusion and so forth. All the things that we consider mental problems grow out of our inability <clears throat> to be present with our experience and then we're either pushing it away or grasping at it in some unhealthy fashion. Now, these states are reciprocally inhibited by an opposite set of states, which is to say that there's a a whole variety of healthy states, and when the healthy states arise, the unhealthy ones disappear. And the three roots of the healthy states, instead of delusion, there's wisdom or clarity. Instead of hatred and aversion fear, there's love or a sense of connectedness. Instead of grasping, there's generosity or gratitude. Instead of kind of trying to hold on to things, there's a sense of appreciation. And that means that experience arises. We can appreciate it. We see it clearly. There's a sense of love and well-being. And from those roots, which get fostered through mindfulness, there there grows graciousness, modesty, insight, flexibility, joy, equanimity, kindness, adaptability, a whole variety of other healthy mental states. And so in a certain way, all of Buddhist psychology is to help us to see what mental states are present, whether they're unhealthy ones, to see them clearly and release them by holding them with compassion or forgiveness, letting them go, and by cultivating, releasing them, cultivating healthy states of mindfulness, generosity, or or gratitude, love, clarity, and so forth. And those give, then, what neuroscientists 
have shown is adaptability and <clears throat> emotional resilience and pliancy of mind and all kinds of good things come from it. So this is a map, really, that says you want to know what mental health is. It is the ability to be present for life experience with mindfulness and graciousness and ease, neither resisting or being caught up in the fears and, or lost in confusion, but with clarity and presence. You want to know what mental illness and mental health is, mental, um, mental difficulties are, they are rooted in our inability to tolerate and be with experience without either grasping and getting addicted or pushing it away. And the most important thing is that there are a whole variety of trainings and ways to move us from unhealthy to healthy states. <clears throat> now, sometimes people will ask, um, this is nice for meditation, but what about when, when there's much more severe pathology? So if you're interested, there's a book by Ed Podville um, called Recovering Sanity, and he was a psychiatrist who used these principles with um, psychotic patients and developed, there's a few centers now called the Windhorse Centers. In, um, and the, the, the basic gist of his approach is that even when somebody is delusional or psychotic, there will be moments of clarity. He said, and you have to wait for those moments when you can really connect with that person and let them know what's going on and expand those moments until they start to begin to trust the sanity of their mind as well as the insanity. And part of his places were started. I had some folks come and visit me to talk about some of these places they were being founded um, by a few people whose names I won't use, but they're enormously wealthy, wealthy and then they had kids in their family who, who were psychotic or had psychiatric problems. And they said, we gave them medication. And in some cases, the medication didn't help. They, the side effects of obesity or the side effects of drooling or the side effects of just losing their soul were too draconian. And so can you help, and Ed was really a founder of this, to create places took a lot of resources to be with these people to help them find themselves again. So that was pretty interesting. Um, or, as I said, there's DBT, dialectic behavior therapy of Marshall Linhan and so forth, <clears throat> that works with mindfulness and builds the capacity to be with distress and so forth for borderline and other pretty difficult, you know, problems. But even in the simplest way, when I teach with Dan Siegel colleague and neuroscientist from UCLA, <clears throat> people will come to him with depression. And he listens. Sometimes it's situational depression because people died or whatever. Sometimes it's kind of an ongoing de depression that's been there for a while. He'll take out his prescription pad and he'll write a prescription that says 45 minutes to one hour of strong aerobic exercise six times a week come see me in three months. And more than half of the people who are depressed and come see him three months later are fine because they've been sitting at their desks or their computers or whatever it is, moping or, or you know, unable to work because of the way they're unable to move in some way because of the way their life has been organized. And when they actually get their body moving, no meditation, you know, okay, pay attention a little bit. 
um, for more than half of them, that changes them. So it also says something about our culture and our mental health system, that we've forgotten some really, really basic things. And all of these, like rain that we just practiced, are ways of recognizing and appreciating or understanding and not and then investigating and not identifying and moving us from what's unhealthy to what are healthy states. Now this is especially important in trauma, which was brought up by the question just a little bit ago. <clears throat> and trauma is a very complex thing because it's held in the body, there are all these emotions, there are stories and social needs about it, all of these are kind of, kind of there together. So um, good trauma work begins, and you can look at the work of Peter Levine, somatic experience, or EMDR is another one, begins by tracking how it's held in the body, but even before that, by getting some resource for that person so that they're stable enough to approach the trauma without getting re-traumatized. And then they can begin to tell their story, they can begin to activate those emotions, because what happens in trauma basically is something terrible happens, you go into fight, flight, or freeze, and you can't bear what's happening to you, so you kind of dissociate from it to survive and get through it. But then, if it's not released, it remains in your body. It can stay there for years or decades. And we see this with vets who come back when they haven't had good trauma work. That, that becomes their demons. And I remember t- talking to a vet who'd come and been on a retreat, and he sat and he relived the firefights he had in you know, in the battles and so forth, while he was sitting on his cushion, the things that used to be in his nightmares and wake him up every night, but now he was reliving them consciously. And he said, because I did, I could come to terms with them in an entirely different way. So there's the body part of unlayering, there's the tolerance of the emotions a little by little, and then there is often the storytelling. You know, I think of this woman who came here on a retreat who'd been in the war in Kosovo. She, um, and she'd, she'd been injured and there, she'd seen a lot of terrible stuff. And she said, nobody, I, I, nobody really has heard my story. You know, people don't want to hear your war stories, really, very much. And I said, well, I'm interested, but we're on a silent retreat. Could you do this for me? Could you write some of your stories? I'll read them and then we'll talk. Okay, three days later she comes in and she hands me 80 pages, you know, and a, and a handwritten thing, and I think to myself, gee, I hope she can write well, because i got to read all this stuff, right? It turns out that not only did she tell the stories of the suffering and the, you know, the pain of that war zone, but she had fallen in love with this person, and so half of it was a love story in between the firefight or battle. So I'm like up at night turning the pages to see what's going to happen next. <clears throat> or when I've worked with vets coming back, I've done a little bit of that work with my colleagues, Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, um, retreats for returning vets, especially combat vets. One of the things that happens is that we make a safe enough place and we do some rituals to make it feel really safe for them to tell their stories. And they can't tell them to their families because here's the issue, as they would say in their language. First, I can't tell you what I saw. It was so horrific. And so, you know, how can you talk about dismembered bodies and, you know, blown up children? And they, Nobody wants to hear that stuff. 
But then there's something worse. I can't tell you what I had to do. And that is what the Irish call it, a geish on your soul. There's some weight that you carry because you were in a certain position as a warrior where you had to do things that are really inhuman. Um, And you need somehow to find forgiveness for that. And the fact that these warriors coming back can be together, and we will start by telling myths of warriors coming back in Africa and in Tibet and the Mayan warriors and so forth, because every culture also has stories about how to bring warriors back and, and re, reconnect them with, the, with their lives, because it's not just now. So then these men realize, oh, it's not just me. This is the archetypal dilemma of a warrior. How do you come home? And I could tell you some very powerful stories, but anyway... Um, they tell the stories um, then, um, and then we often have them write a little story or write a poem or something like that. And in the end, we'll invite their families after a week to come in, and people, and they stand up and they read or tell some of their story. And we have a ritual to say, we have heard your story, we bear witness to your suffering, and now as a warrior, you, we welcome you back into the life not of a warrior, but the life of the home and the life of the land. We do a whole ritual. We welcome you home. We see who you are. We see what you've suffered. And to be able to do that um, is an extraordinary thing. It's a kind of redemption for them. And when you think about, you know, from Iraq and Afghanistan and so so forth, <clears throat> there have been at least a couple million people who were in the, quote, theater of war there. Um, and mostly they come back and they're disgorged by a bus onto a street corner, okay, go home, you know, without a place to understand what they still carry in their lives. So this is just giving you a sense of how um, trauma work holds, uh, works, in which you need the stability and grounding so they don't get overwhelmed, you need a kind of sacred or safe container, um, You need to allow for the emotional wreaths, the storytelling, but more than anything, coming out of the body, what's there. And it's like this story I use of the man who wrote to the IRS and said, uh, I haven't been able to sleep since I cheated on my taxes last year, so I've enclosed an anonymous cashier's check for $3,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest, (laughs) right? And that's how we are. You know, we do things a little at a time. And for good trauma work, you have to understand that kind of ability to release. And it grows with the capacity for presence comes resilience and regulation and expanding the window of tolerance and and things like that. But it's not just people coming back from, um, from battle. Here, I'll read you something. Am I gorgeous, my child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of some highly flammable material, an approximation of satin. Pudgy figures decorate with pink polish, trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say you are. Curly hair, joyful smile, flawless skin. This child, as all children, is the epitome of childhood beauty. This child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. 
Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to play with toy tractors, not because it matters to me, it doesn't, but because I'm already hearing in my head the name-calling he'll face in kindergarten. Many adults are already disturbed by the dresses and utter apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball, trucks, and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. I sweep into my arms, plant a kiss on his cheeks. Always, I say, always. But you can feel the tenderness when you hear that story. You know, of what it's like. And in the years of leading men's retreats that I've done, in the evenings we'll do a council where men listen to each other. And sometime in the middle of the retreat, sometimes we'll make a theme of fathers and sons and people will hold a talking piece and tell a story about that. The father wounds come out a lot then. But usually also in the middle we'll take an evening and ask men to tell their sexual history. And just for those of you who aren't men in the room, men are really confused. <laughs> and there's quite a bit of suffering. It's not like, whoopee, let's talk about sex. It's like, oh my God, here are the mistakes, and here's the difficulties, and here my confusion about it. Um, and then when the gay men talk, um, the level of suffering that has been in many people's lives is enormous. You know, so there's that story just telling you what might happen to those human beings. They, they just come out as a baby and say, here's who I am. And then the culture says, I'm sorry, your skin is the wrong color. Your orientation is the wrong. You're the, you know, and then you get mistreated sometimes in really terrible ways. And we come with this original innocence. So, here we are training ourselves in a deeper capacity to be present for the 10,000 joys and sorrows of the world. Acknowledging what's here, making the space of loving awareness so our awareness is bigger than the experience itself. Noticing where it is in the body, being able to name it. If fear comes, you name, oh, fear, anxious, fear, fear. And maybe it takes you 50 or 100 times that at some point fear will come and you go, oh, fear, I know you. Yeah, okay, fear, fear, let's see what happens. And you lose your fear of it. Or maybe, as I said, you're restless, or you're bored, or you're lonely. And so you want to tolerate your loneliness. Don't abandon your loneliness, writes the poet Hafez. Let it cut more deeply. Let it season you as few ingredients can. So you sit here and you're lonely or bored. What to do? Be bored. Be lonely. Let it cut more deeply, so to speak. Let yourself, okay, I'll die of boredom. I'll die of restlessness, right? Because if you don't, you know what happens? You're home and you get a little bored or a little lonely. What do you do? You open the refrigerator, right? You go online. You do anything because you can't be with yourself. So to be able to tolerate your loneliness or boredom or your grief or your desire... And desire isn't a bad thing. There's healthy and unhealthy desires. It can be addictive, but it also can be healthy. The thing is, it's part of you, or part of being a human being. It's like the Alison Luderman poet, she, she wrote, um, it's kind of like 
I hid the chocolate chip cookies because I'm on a diet. Meanwhile, I'm the only person in the entire galaxy who knows where those chocolate chip cookies are hidden, right? And that's how desire is. You can't like remove it from your body, but you can see it and you can understand it. And grief is really important. Um, we talked about from Maladoma, the Lakota Native Americans, they see it as a doorway to what's sacred or holy, that people who are grieving are said to have their prayers are more powerful because they're connected with the, the sacred in the world in some way. Um, and so, you know, I think about retreats I've done with kids coming out of street gangs, again, with Luis Rodriguez, this wonderful Latino poet, Mike, Michael Mead, a mythologist, um, Maladoma. And, um, you know, we're going to teach them meditation, do poetry, mythology and stuff. And these guys come and they sit in the back and their hoods are over their head and their hats are back and like, man, you're going to give me a poem? I'm out on the street. People have got nine millimeters. You got something better than that. You know, this is tough. And so we'll say, you know, we can't even begin to have a conversation um, because there are too many people in this room who haven't been acknowledged, um, who are with us. So would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed? We'll light a candle and put it in the middle of a table. It's a very simple ritual. And when you put the stone by the candle, just say their name. You know, this is for Tito, and this is for RJ, and this is for Homegirl, and so forth. And some of these kids come back and their hands have lots of stones. No young person should know that many dead people, basically. And they'll put them on, and there's a reverence when they say the name of their homies who was killed. And then we sit back down and all of a sudden the hoods come off and their eyes are open. They say, okay, this is a place where we can talk about what happened. These people aren't afraid to talk about it. So this is in a way what we're learning in meditation is a kind of equanimity and balance to be able to be present for what is here, um, to make the space in heart and mind with loving awareness that say, yes, we can do this. And a couple more things to say, and then we'll do a meditation. As we practice, and the research from Alan Wallace and Cliff Saren shows a kind of growing um, ability to be in balance with all things. Cliff is at uh, UC Davis again. Um, Alan Wallace at Santa Barbara. There grows a kind of equanimity or an ability to be, be... at ease with birth and death and joy and sorrow, um, maybe even with the mystery of things. Um, the image that's used is if you put a spoonful of salt in this cup of water, it will taste very salty. But if you put that same spoon of salt in a pond or a lake, the water still remains pure and clear. And in the same way, you can make your mind more spacious like sky, time and space. Um, And when you do that, when your loving awareness expands in some way, it gives you a a kind of great freedom. So here's a story from uh, a woman, Maria, who works as a nurse in the 
emergency room of a local hospital. She says how she's learned to use the art of resting in spacious or loving awareness. She says, sometimes it's not too busy and I can work on automatic, check on a patient or do the paperwork while my mind drifts off to think about a million other things. Then we might get a whole crowd of incoming patients, accidents, heart attacks, asthma emergencies. I do my part, but I'm also tuned into the whole of what's going on. I've learned to open the awareness. It's as if my mind gets spacious and still, present, sensitive to what's needed, yet kind of detached at the same time. I guess it's like that flow state that athletes talk about. I'm in the middle doing all the right things, yet some part of me is just watching it all silent. It happens more these days, not just at work. And when I do my meditation practice, it gets stronger. I had a big fight with my son, teenage son. In the middle of it, I could feel my body tightening, how right I thought my view was. Just feeling that, I relaxed, shifted to the space of awareness, and things opened up. I was saying no, but I could also feel all the love underneath and how these were just our roles and we had to play them well and behind it, it was all spacious and all okay. When we learn to rest in in awareness, there's both caring and silence. There's a big space to allow life and a way to respond in the dance of life and yet there's all this freedom that starts to open up as well. And so... This is the growth of equanimity. A few lines from Mary Oliver where she writes, For years and years, I tried just to love my life. That line alone is about half of spiritual practice. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much. And she vanished into the world. And so this is kind of that balance. T.S. Eliot says, teach us to care and not to care. To both be present for life in an intimate and a caring way, but also to realize, like Isa wrote of his daughter, that it is like dew, that it vanishes. Um, And that this is also the truth of our life. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. He said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so, you know who that one person is? As Miss Piggy would say, moi. You know this. But you become that person as you train in this capacity. And it also allows you then to not just be caught in the current drama, but to have some vast perspective, the turning of the seasons. You all know that phrase from the Ojibwe Indians. You know, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And it is really so mysterious. A friend of mine who's a hospice director was also trained as a teacher in Buddhist meditation. He said one morning he had, a, he had an old guy from an Italian family who was in his mid-80s and close to dying from cancer. 
um, and the family came in and they said, we have a dilemma, we've got to go see our father. They were in their 50s. And, and uh, my friend said, well, what's the, what's the dilemma? They said, well, his younger brother, who was 79, just died yesterday in a car accident. And our dad is so close to dying, we don't know whether we should tell him or not. Maybe it will disturb him. We want him to be peaceful. What should we do? And my friend said, well, let's go and visit your father and maybe we'll get a sense of what's right. This is a very good mindful move. Let's not make up our minds. Let's actually go and pay attention to what's happening. So they went in the room. How are you today, Dad? Very weak, you know, close to the end. They're talking to him. Nice to see you again, whatever. And then he says, don't you have something to tell me? I say, what do you mean? He said, well, my brother, he died yesterday. And they said, well, how do you know that? And he said, oh, I've been talking to him all night. You know, what do you make of that, folks? This is our life. It's really mysterious. And the spaciousness of awareness says, oh, human incarnation, we're going to have some pain, we're going to have gorgeous beauty, we're going to have love, we're going to have fear. This is what human incarnation is. And we can make something magnificent of it. And so equanimity is that capacity to be present for praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. Um... And to know it's all part of the game and vastness, but it's not who you are. You are the space of awareness itself that witnesses it. And that connects you with everything when you get quiet. Like Alice Walker wrote, she said, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me that feeling of being part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laugh and I cry and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. And we all know it, you know, making love or walking in the mountains or listening to an amazing piece of music or taking some sacred medicine or sitting there with someone when they die or when they're getting born. And you go, whoa, this is pretty wild. I mean, I was talking with my wife, Trudy, who had a huge mystical experience when her, first, when her daughter was born. She was alone for hours in labor you know, it was back in the day when people were not all that care, they, the kind of care. I mean, there, you know, there was a while in medicine when babies were thought to not have any feelings, so you don't have to anesthetize them. Animals don't have any feelings. Give me a break, you know. You do meditation, and you can go back and feel what it was like to be in the womb when you get very quiet. And all the way back, those memories are in your body. But there she was all alone, 21 years old, long labor, tremendous pain, frightened some. And then she said, something remarkable happened. All of a sudden, my mind just exploded and it became vast like the sky. And I felt not myself giving birth, but that I was women. I was all the women on the earth that had given birth um, and that always had and always will and that it wasn't personal at all. And then she said, I was shocked. That means walking down the street, everybody I saw came out of a woman's body. They kind of forget that, right? I mean, it's wild. You were this little thing and you grew up in there and bloop, okay, I'm here, you know. It's pretty insane. And she said, all of a sudden I felt like I was part of something so enormous and vast and it wasn't personal at all. It was the game of life which we are born into. So um, this is the basis for a practice called equanimity practice. Why don't you stand up and stretch and we'll do a little bit of it. <clears throat> 
Then we have another practice and then another one to do. But maybe we'll take a little break either before or after this practice, uh, the next practice. feel like you've stretched enough for a little bit, whenever you're ready, let yourself sit back down. Now, the equanimity practice, which is like the compassion training or maybe the loving kindness that we'll do and many of you done, is a combination of envisioning and using certain phrases that invite it a quality of equanimity. And the phrases are, may I see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be spacious, balanced, and at ease. May I live with a peaceful heart. So those are, those are the phrases. And then there's one more tough one. Um, and this is when you're doing equanimity for other people. As, as we expand the practice. And that is um, that equanimity is a balance for compassion and loving kindness. So when you do the practices of compassion and loving kindness, they can sometimes fall into attachment. I'd I love this person and I really want them to get better, and I really want them to get their act together, and I'm really compassionate for them, but I want them this or that. you know. And you feel not only is there a love or a care, but also some hope that there'll be some way or something for you. Um, and it can go to the level of codependence, where you do everything for somebody um, that they need to learn to do for themselves. So the last phrase of the equanimity practice, as you picture people that are close to you or others is your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. So here you've been doing compassion. May you be held in compassion and loving kindness. May you be held in loving kindness and so forth. But then to balance that so you don't get lost in that, you realize you can care for them, you can love them, but you can't be happy for them. You can't let go for them. You can't live for them. And so then you say, your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. And you can feel the truth of it, that it places the responsibility or the capacity to awaken in the hands and the heart of that person. It's actually quite helpful in difficult relationships. And I remember teaching this. I was teaching it and I had ran a group or I was invited to run a group for women of color at Alice Walker's for about a decade. Very accomplished women 
professor at Berkeley or the head of HIV services for the city of San Francisco, you know, or Alice as a Pulitzer Prize winner and so forth. And when I taught this, I was a little nervous, like, oh, they'll feel like this is cold and uncaring. But it, in fact, when we finished, it was really important because they said in our community, especially a community of people of color and target communities where there's been a lot of suffering, a lot of racism, a lot of difficulty, those of us who are accomplished in some way, many people will come and say, help me. Um, help me publish my book, give me money, um, you know, fix my family, do something for me because you have power and money and I need it. And she said, they said, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the need. And so to hear this and be able to say, I can love you, I can do what I'm able to do, but your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you was actually important and liberating for them. You understand? So you ready? Okay. Let your eyes close and always we'll begin by just coming back to feel your breath and body as you sit here. And relax with each breath. And as you sit quietly, you can reflect on the value of a peaceful heart. The value of moving through all the changes, praise and blame and gain and loss. And living with a sense of balance and ease. And let yourself acknowledge that all created things arise and pass away. Joys and sorrows. Pleasant and unpleasant events. People, animals, buildings, 
nations, whole civilizations rise and fall. And let yourself come to rest in the midst of it all. May I see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be spacious, balanced, at ease. And feel the vastness of the turning of the seasons, the changes of life. May I move through the world with a peaceful heart. Let your loving awareness open like the sky, as big as this room or as vast as the sky beyond. And within it arise feelings and thoughts and experiences. May I see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be spacious and balanced and at ease. May I move through the world with a peaceful heart. And now let yourself think of someone for whom you want to wish this same quality of peace and equanimity. Picture them. Remember or envision them. And as if you could share the field of spaciousness and peace with them as you envision them.
may you be spacious and balanced and at ease. May you see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you move through the world with a peaceful heart. Your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. You can love them and care for them, but you can't be happy for them. You can't live for them. Your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. May you see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. Now think of another person for whom you want to wish a peaceful heart. Picture them too. May you see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be spacious, balanced and at ease. May you move through the world with a peaceful heart. And in the end, your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. I can love you or care for you, but it's in your own heart and mind, your happiness and suffering. And feel that the circles of peacefulness can extend to everyone seated in this room around you. May all of us See the arising and passing of all things 
with equanimity and balance. May we live with a peaceful heart. And imagine or sense or feel that you could extend the well-wishing of equanimity and peace out from this room across the landscape to the firefighters and the people who are losing their homes, to all the communities around them, to all the people of the Bay Area, to the animals, the birds of the sky and the beasts of the fields, fish in the waters, and that the sense of peace could spread far and wide across the continents and the nations and the world. May beings everywhere learn to see the arising and passing of all life with equanimity and balance. May beings everywhere be spacious, balanced, and at ease. May beings everywhere live with a peaceful heart. So again, these are practices and there are many of them. And some may work for you better than others. So you might find compassion is good and equanimity feels too detached or dry. Or you might find being with your breath and body is a great way to practice. But then this feels very mechanical. So don't judge yourself, but rather respect and listen without judgment to what serves you. But what's also true about these kind of practices is you don't just take one piano lesson, you know, or one tennis lesson, or one lesson in coding. Um, you actually, that's why it's called practice rather than perfect or something else, right? So you do it and you do it a number of times. And as you do, more and more the states that you're inviting or the perspective start to become available to you. Comments, questions on this one? Anything?
Please. I just I just wanted to hear the name of the book that you were talking about again with the author about psychosis. Oh, okay. That was Ed Podville's book, P-O-D-V-I-L-L-E. And I believe it was called, one second, I'll look up exactly, Recovering Sanity. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was uh, seven years old, you had spoken about how things can last for decades. When I was seven years old, I watched my mother die in a car accident. I was mm. in, in the accident. Thank you. And <clears throat> it took me 62 years, I counted it up, before I could grieve. And thanks to this wonderful therapist who introduced me to <clears throat> mindfulness and so on, and um, it, it. I guess my point is that it's never too late. Mm. And um, now, ironically, we're having difficulty locating her. She lives in Santa Rosa, mm-hmm. so uh, we're hoping. But thank you for that. That's really, really important. What you say first: the, the loss is great for a seven-year-old, grievous, but to say it's never too late. And that these things can be held for so long and then that they can be released. It's really, really important. So, thank you. Yes, please. So, Jack, I I want to acknowledge that you said this in your teaching, but a cautionary tale for me is that when I first came to Spirit Rock, I was told to practice like my hair was on fire. And you don't have a lot of hair, I noticed, but anyway. It burned off. Oh, I see. It all burned off. And uh, it was a club that I used to attack myself. Yes. And then over the years, Spirit Rock changed, and there was a lot more about equanimity practices, wisdom practices, joy. Um, And again, in my hard-headedness, they were all ways that I used to attack myself. And I, I remember I went to a talk at the Zen Center, Ajahn Sumedho, and... Somebody asked him about these, and he said, yeah, I never did them. They didn't work for me. And it shocked me, because I had never heard anybody say that before. Never did what? These kind of practices, the equanimity and the loving kindness. Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. And I read a poem by a Japanese priest that said that Trust your practice. It's like water flowing downhill. It will find the best way down. And I've come to understand that, I mean, I I don't know how this happened, but I've learned complete faith in my practice. It'll take me where I need to go. Mm. It will teach me the equanimity I need to learn. I don't do that. I can't do that. I've already learned that. 
But my practice is not me. It's something that happens to me. And I've learned to just really trust it. It knows. I don't have to. Thank you. Really um, important and critical things that you say. The first, with a lot of respect to you, is that you do have to be steward of your own practice. Um, And if you read the old Buddhist texts and so forth, there's actually a lot of practices in there. And some are fitting for a certain person and some are not, which is part of what you're pointing out. Um, And here's a little note about Ajahn Sumedho, who's an old friend that I've known for 50 years. And that is that I could show you something that he wrote back in the 1970s or 80s where loving kindness and meditation was really important for him. So I need to say that only because it's also true that some of these practices may be helpful for you at a particular time and may not be helpful for you at another time. You either outgrow them or they don't fit. And so that follows just what you're saying about respecting and paying attention to yourself. Um, and what I've seen now over these decades of both training teachers and you know in our community and being with people, just as you say, is that the work of the heart and mind that's dedicated in each in your own way to attention and kindness, however you practice it, changes us. And I really see it. And I have this passage from Tamara Engel, um, who wrote this in the last weeks of her life. She says, my days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation Not only the joy and ease that it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy about my illness, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now even as I face my death. And so that was her description, like yours, of trusting practice in the way that worked for her. So thank you for that beautiful comment. One more in the back, please. I, I'm glad you just said there are different, different practices for different times. Yeah. I remember there have been times, especially when I was falling in love, I was trying to have equanimity. And I just couldn't do it mm-hmm. and I, I was just reflecting on that you do need to have different practices at different times but how do you know how do you know when to do what it's a great question um, and I would say you know how do you know who to marry how do you know which job to pick um, nobody can answer it for you um, Sometimes it's some intuitive knowing. Sometimes it's based on trying things, you know. Trial marriage, well, maybe. But anyway, um, uh, you with this, yeah, 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 you don't have to get a divorce from your meditation, fortunately. But anyway, um, I think you try stuff. And maybe you say, or oh, I'll try it for a bit because it feels like it might be helpful. And if you try for a while, it doesn't feel helpful. Now, maybe this isn't the right thing or the right time. So it really is a deep listening to yourself more than anything else. 
So let's see, where are we? We're at 10 after 3. Other practices. Do we need a break now or can we go a little longer? What's your feeling? Hmm? Break? Break? That's what I'm hearing. All right. Let's take a 10, 15 minute break. Um, Keep it mostly quiet. I mean, if you really need to talk, okay. But I think the silence is actually a good thing because this touches a lot.
So, um, let's take a few more questions or comments before the next section, because we're covering a lot of different material and approaches today. Um, so anything anyone like to raise as a comment, question, experience? How are you doing? You ready for your nap? <laughs> Mid-afternoon, hey. Please. Yes, I mentioned the river of thoughts. Comes through, and uh, I noticed in one of the, the trainings that you did earlier, naming the thoughts seems to make the river of thoughts slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I also seemed to notice that there was a space between thoughts. Beautiful. And what's in that space? What is that? Ooh, what a great question. <laughs> Or maybe who's in that space? Right, that's a fabulous question. Yeah, so it's true that when you turn your attention to thoughts, there becomes a kind of a shift from being inside the thought where you're in Chicago now and, you know, doing a business deal or dealing with your, you know, long-lost brother or sister and their family or something. You're right in the middle of it noticing, oh, there's a thought about Chicago or there's a thought about whatever it is. And it's like you step outside of it. And if you name it, oh, planning or remembering or envisioning, very often it will kind of dissolve like um, fog under sunlight, which is what you describe, that sometimes it'll dissolve or disappear. And then you notice whether you do that or not that there are spaces between thoughts. And the spaces between thoughts become very interesting because we usually are so identified with our thoughts Um, that the spaces between thoughts start to show us who we are or what we are when we're not thinking, when we're not taking that as an identity. And so I'll say a few little things about it because it gives an opportunity to talk about three levels of mindfulness. The first level of mindfulness is the level of being able to be present for the content of experience. And so as we're practicing and training, um, we're able more and more to acknowledge this is fear, this is longing, this is the planning mind, this is anxiety, um, this is love, um, this is, uh, you know, the memory of conflict or the memory of great pleasure, um, this is sexual desire, um, you know, this is... uh, some spiritual ideal or ideas that we have. Um, This is um, physical pain in the body or pleasure. And we become able to notice the content. This is sort of recognizing and accepting and become able to be present for it. So already that gives us a great deal of freedom to do that because we're not afraid of that bigger range of experience. Second level of mindfulness is mindfulness of the process. That as we pay attention more and more, we notice that nothing lasts. That every thought and every sensation and every mood and every feeling, if we track it and name it, arises for time and passes away. And so we start to see the river of thoughts, 
you know, and the stream of emotions. And when we pay attention to the body, it too has all these changing sensations. Even something that feels like it's stuck and solid and painful, when you pay really close attention, it has lots of little sensations that make it up. Some pain actually has fire and needle pinpricks or, you know, vibrating or something like that. Um, And the more closely you pay attention, experience gets pixelated the way those little pixels are on a screen. And nothing is solid. It's all created in solidity with the mind. The eye doesn't, isn't a camera that just looks at you and you and you. If you look closely at the eye, if you were able to, um, you would see that it's actually vibrating a little bit. And so it's sort of picking up experiences on the retina, but from different angles. And then it goes up through the optic nerve, and it's your little brain that organizes it and says, oh, that's a man and that's a woman and, you know, that's a cow or something. But the eye isn't seeing it stably that way. Our brain creates, and our mind creates the solidity of the world. And as you become more closely attentive, that solidity starts to dissolve. And you see that there's not only thoughts, but there's spaces between thoughts. And there's, you know, one feeling follows another and sensations are really a field of vibrating sensations. And you start to realize that you can't hold on to things in the way that you thought you could because they're always changing. And if you try to hold on, you get rope burn, basically, because they're they're not going to stay still. Um, So every experience starts to show itself as impermanent, as tentative, as insubstantial in some way because whatever it is it dissolves the strongest feeling the best thought the worst thought they come and they go oh this is what happens and that there's a certain kind of unsatisfactoriness to it all in that none of it can be a place to rest none of it gives you lasting stable happiness even with the great pleasures which are wonderful to enjoy Then they change. And when you're in the middle of them, you think, okay, how much longer? How can I hold on to this? How do I get more of this, right? Even in the middle, there's that little worry because you know that however cool and wonderful that experience is, oh my God, it's so great. It's not going to last. And so there comes a kind of wisdom. The first level of wisdom is just that you can be with all of human experience. The second one is you realize, oh, it's, it's a river. It's changing all the time. And so you learn how to be with changing experience and ungraspable experience. That's, the con- that, that's from content to process. Then, as we go further, and we'll talk about it, the third level of experience, which your question points to, is um, of mindfulness, is to begin to become aware of consciousness itself, of awareness, and to turn your attention back to the space between thoughts, to the knower and the knowing. Say, who is it that's noticing that everything's impermanent? Who is it that's, you know, noticing the arising and passing of things? And I'm not going to go into that further for this moment because in hmm, half an hour or so, that's going to be the next piece of what we talk about. So you're kind of leading us to that. It's a great question. Other questions, comments? Turn it on.
Okay. Oh, no. okay. Thank you. Um, question about equanimity. Um, I've heard it described as um, the love that allows. Mm-hmm. And when I'm by myself, uh, at home, um, now I'll turn it around. I find that um, it's, I often feel the need mm, emotionally to, it's almost to have permission or to be allowed to come through. Wait, it. so there you are, you're home alone, and you feel the need to... Um, to allow myself to, to open. Permission to open. Yeah. I mean, I feel the permission, say, mm-hmm. when you were just talking about mm-hmm. equanimity, and it's just lovely. I mean, it feels wonderful. And at home, I d- probably don't even realize how clenched I am. Mm-hmm. So to begin to um, unclench, <laughs> to allow myself equanimity, mm-hmm. you might say, um, um, what would you suggest? Sounds good. I mean, you know, part of what's true is that our organism always expands and contracts. And sometimes people get the idea that if I'm successful in meditation and spiritual life, I'm going to come be spacious like the sky and allow all things, and that's how I'll move through life. Just so expansive like this, open and just everything's going to be always open. But you have to breathe. And your body breathes and your heart pumps, you know, open and closed. Um, and the cerebrospinal fluid pumps. You know, and it turns out the heart opens and closes too, the, the psychic level of the heart. And the mind opens and closes. So the point isn't to get to some state and say, now I have it. Um, but to be respectful and compassionate with opening and closing. And then when you notice that things become tight or contracted or attached... With mindfulness, you notice that. And sometimes just in the noticing, that's enough. Or sometimes you might say, let me bring in a little kindness or compassion or just an invitation to open. And I think that quality of invitation that you describe is a kind of lovely way to describe the practice that we're doing, which is when, when we've gotten lost in some way, to repeatedly invite mindfulness to be present that one of the translations of sati, sati sampajanya, the, the word for mindfulness, is um, remembering. So it's just what you're doing. You're remembering, oh yeah, I can breathe. Okay, I can make space, and so forth. So that's lovely. Thank you. Hmm. Somebody asks, where can you find the different meditations that we're doing? And there are, of course, written versions and a lot of the things that I've done. A lot of them are in this book, The Wise Heart, there's a number of them in here. There's even more of them in this little book in the bookstore called The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. There's about 15 meditations in here. And then there's a bunch of them online, my own, and then Sharon Salzberg and Tara Brock and uh, um, Joseph Goldstein and various people who do versions of loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness and so forth. YouTube, you, there's lots of that stuff. So, um, Okay, I want to go on to two more sections or three that we're going to do. The next um, has to do with forgiveness. And in terms of self-care, if you will, and care in the world, um, there's so many liberating tools 
I mean, there's the tools of wise speech. It's called right speech sometimes in translation and how to pay attention to our words and have them connected with our best values. Um, Compassion and one of the things that's really central in understanding compassion is that it always has to include ourself. That if you feel like you're being compassionate for someone or some circumstance, which is lovely, caring, feeling their difficulty, that the question to ask is, is this action compassionate for them and for this one sitting here, for, the, for me? And that's the completion of the circle. If it's only them that falls into codependence or burnout, if it's only yourself, of course, it can fall into separation or you know, self-absorption or narcissism or things like that. So the compassion is really a, a circle that includes care for others and care for this one. Now, one of the things that um, is also both a practice and an understanding of Buddhist psychology is the power of forgiveness. Or as someone said, it's never too late in that beautiful comment to start over again. Um, And I remember working with this mother um, uh, whose teenager daughter was really angry at her and she, she felt as a mom she couldn't do anything right since her husband, the father of this child, had died. And of course it was really part of her way of grieving and not letting go of her father, holding on. Um, And so there was all this kind of struggle. And one day they were in the kitchen said, you know, she was complaining and not doing it right. Um, And the mom said to her daughter, "Um, you just, uh, daughter said, you're not doing it right, said, you'll have to forgive me. I'm doing the best I can since dad died. And that's all. Really, really simple. Um, Here's a story from my friend Frank Ostaseski from his new book called The Five Invitations. He was the founder of Zen Center Hospice, um, which has been there for 25 years. Tells a lot of different stories. This is one about Jillian, whose mother was... uh, in the middle, late middle of Alzheimer's disease and had lost a lot of her memory and was pretty confused. And Jillian brought her mother home to live with her. Jillian worked in the publishing industry as an editor. And she came back home to her living room one day to find all her beloved books. She had a great library, including her Buddhist texts, scattered across the floor. Her mother announced, I'm tired of all these dusty old books. I'm going to give them to my dentist. So you can sort of hear a little of the kind of delusion in that, right? Jillian became really angry right away, scolded her mother's assistant who had come to kind of tend her and live with him, said, how could you let this happen? How could you let her do this? And the attendant, who wasn't caught up in the whole drama, replied, Madam, today I pack the books up, and tomorrow I will unpack them. And if this gives a sense of control to a woman who has lost so much, well, then it's fine with me. It doesn't matter so much. I just like being with her. And you can hear how forgiving and gracious that is. That that's just the way that it is. And yeah, the books are down, and we can put them back in the shelves, and she won't even notice a little bit later whether she took them down or not. 
and our ideas about how the world should be and you know our reactions are very different than um, the way the world is. So forgiveness in large ways and small is a really critical thing for human life. Um, it's necessary or we are chained to the past both personally and collectively as you know you know if you have the northern Irish Protestants and Catholics saying your people marched through our neighborhood 300 years ago and did this to our people and we're never going to forget it and then they just keep it going from one generation to another and my my dear Irish friend Michael Mead said where he grew up in Brooklyn people were having a fight that you could walk over and say is this a private fight or can anybody join you know it was like that was part of their sport um, but it's created a tremendous amount of suffering in Ireland or the Palestinians and the Israelis or the Bosnians and the Croats and the Serbs or the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda and we could go on and on if there isn't forgiveness then the next generation continues the cycle and it doesn't have an end to it and somebody has to say it stops with me it stops with me Again, um, yeah, it's like uh, a woman who came to see me who was in the middle of a, of a divorce and she had married a very high-powered lawyer. He was the one who had the affair, but nevertheless, he was trying to take the children, turning them against her and trying to keep all the money and stuff like that. He wasn't all that nice of a fellow. So we started to work together. I said, get yourself up killer lawyer you need something good to protect you um, you know and you've got to deal with all the suffering with compassion and this and that and she came in one day because he was trying to turn the children against her to get custody one of those very painful messy divorces and she said I've come to a realization I will not bequeath a legacy of bitterness to my children no matter what my husband does I will not speak badly of to, of their father to my children and whatever suffering there is it stops with me I will not pass it on and there was so much courage and dignity and beauty to that state of consciousness even though she was suffering terribly so forgiveness is necessary or we get locked into the past um, and the beautiful thing is that it can be ta taught but it, you need to understand some things about it first as you practice it or teach it. And many of you have heard this practice or done it before. But the first thing is that it doesn't condone what happened. It doesn't say it's okay, forgive and forget. In fact, the opposite, you can say, I see it clearly and I will never again allow this um, suffering to continue. I'll do everything I can to stop it. Um, it doesn't mean you have to speak with the person that you're doing forgiveness with or you can stand up um, and stop that whatever is causing suffering forgiveness simply means that you're not going to carry the hatred in your heart that's all you do what you need to do to protect yourself and others it doesn't condone it but I simply am not going to carry hatred and who is it for in the end you know the people who betrayed you I'm talking personally now they could be on vacation in Maui right now snorkeling right and you're sitting there, I hate them, I hate them. Who's suffering? You know, 
in the end, it's really for yourself. It's like the two ex-prisoners of war that I always mention, who'd been in terrible prisoner of war camp and tortured and all those things. And they meet 20 years later and one says to the other, well, have you forgiven your captors yet, those guards? And the second one says, no, never. And the first one says, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? It's not really for anyone else. They may, may or may not accept it, and that's not the point. It's so that you... um, so that you don't carry the suffering into the future in your life and pass it on to others. It also is not a papering over. Okay, I've done a little forgiveness practice. Ha ha, it's all done. You know, sweet, loving Buddhist nonsense. You might experience rage and grief and outrage and anger for a year or two or however long it takes. But at some point, you realize, okay, it's too much to bear. It's too hard to carry this. And like that IRS check I talked about, that guy, you know, maybe you do it a little step at a time. But finally you realize that um, you've got to give up all hope for a better past. It's done. It's over, right? You can't change it. And you don't really want to put anybody out of your heart. So you realize that the forgiveness is not for them, but it's the quality that you live with. And it's not weak or naive. Um, Like the woman who said, I will not bequeath a legacy of bitterness to my children. Um, It's said in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to see the brave, look to those who can forgive. If you want to see the courageous, look to those who can return love for hatred. And of course, there's Martin Luther King, after his church was bombed and children killed and said, we will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we will bear the suffering that you offer us and we will so bear it with so much love that not only will we change ourselves, but we will change your consciousness at the same time. I mean, that's really uh, powerful and tough. So it's not weak at all. It's actually tremendously courageous. Mm. I think about a friend who was um, working in a place in San Francisco. Um, uh, She was doing chaplaincy hospice work. And there was a man there who was a prisoner who had been brought to the hospital. Um, He had HIV and hep C and things, and he was dying. Um, And she asked... um, do you want to talk to your family? And he said, no, 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 since I was put in prison 15 years ago, I have not talked to my mother. I think it would break her heart. I just couldn't do it. You know, do you have other brothers and sisters? I have one sister. I haven't talked to her either. Well, maybe your mother would like to see you. And they talked for a while. Eventually she agreed, he agreed to let this chaplain call his mother. And she came some days later and she was sort of this little old, shaky, older woman who came around the door and just stood and looked at her son. He didn't want his mother to see him, you know, shackled to the bed, which he was, you know, a prisoner still. And my friend said, 
it was like watching the Madonna. It was like watching Mother Mary walk around the corner of the door and look in the room because she was still his mom. This is my baby. And she stood there and just looked at him with so much love and began to weep out of care for him. And yes, he was dying. He was dying of HIV and that time and dying of hep C and so forth. But instead of having pushed her away, somehow inviting her to come in, she began to see him with a kind of forgiveness he couldn't give himself. And that transforms us. So many stories of forgiveness I could tell you. One good friend of mine, a woman named Sujata Baliga, and her story was written up in the New York Times Magazine in a long time, interesting. She's one of the most important figures in the restorative justice movement in America, which, which brings together people who've committed crimes of different kinds and their victims in a very delicate dance over a year or two to prepare them to meet each other and maybe to offer forgiveness. But anyway, she grew up and she was abused and sexually abused in her family by her father in terrible ways, all kinds of very pretty grave suffering. She was real smart, went to Harvard and was about to go to law school and said, I'm going to get those guys. I'm going to go to law school, which she did eventually, and I'm going to prosecute them and throw them all in prison. But as she started to do her law practice, she got more and more sick because the anger inside was eating her up. So because she, her family had come from India and she had grandparents there, she went back to India and somebody said, let's go visit the Dalai Lama and listen to his teaching. They went up to Dharamsala. And she left a note at the gate of the Dalai Lama's home saying, I don't know if it's possible to you know, ask a question, but... Uh, my anger is eating me up. I graduated Harvard. I'm now doing law. You know, I've been abused and I don't know what to do. And next day, a little message came, please come Thursday morning. His Holiness will see you. So she went in to see him. He listened to her story compassionately as he does and said two things for you. You have to learn to meditate, including doing some forgiveness practice. And then you have to work with the perpetrators. And she says, okay, meditation, I think I can handle, but I can't work with those. But eventually, um, she did. Um, and she tells a story of being in a room with 12 men in a prison who had all been um, abusers of girls, mostly. Um, maybe boys, too. Um, and she said she was shaking and it was so painful and it was so difficult. Um, and then as she began to talk to them and listen to them over some weeks, she went in one day to the group and she looked around and she didn't see 12 men. She saw 12 abused children because every single one of them had been abused, mostly sexually abused too. And all of a sudden she said, I could see the generations of suffering. And it didn't justify what they did in any way whatsoever but it made her able to see their humanity that changed her heart. And so she became a real um, advocate for restorative justice and does all kinds of, all kinds of wonderful work. Um, what is her name again? Sujata Baliga is her name. 
I remember standing at the Lincoln Memorial and reading that those last lines that are carved in the stone, and it really is a temple, it's a great temple, where it says, with malice toward none and charity toward all. You know, and that's a kind of remarkable phrase after a civil war that killed literally millions of people. With malice toward none and charity toward all, let us bind up the wounds of this war. So this is also what's asked of us and what's possible for you. Remember we started the day talking about inner nobility and dignity um, for a human being, um, that this is what's possible for us. So there's a beautiful practice of forgiveness, which we'll do now. And then it's sort of the warm-up for loving-kindness, although I don't know whether we'll do the loving-kindness since we already did compassion. Um, We have a couple more things to do. So let your eyes close gently and sit, and we'll do three directions of forgiveness. And remember, the first time I was taught this, the teacher said, well, so do this a couple times a day for 10 minutes. Um, Try it out for six months and come back and let me know how it's working. And what that meant was, I thought it and figured it out. Oh, gosh, he means do it 300 times, right? Uh Uh-oh. And sometimes it brings up up the opposite. I hate them. I'm never going to forgive them. That son of a bitch, whatever, you know. Um, sometimes it just feels numb or dead. All kinds of things. And what do you do with that? You hold all that with forgiveness and compassion. Wherever you are is exact. You start where you are. And maybe all you can say is, I'm beginning to learn to incline my attention toward forgiveness, that it might be possible. And that's the move you can make. That's totally fine. So you don't want to use any of these practices to judge yourself. You're already too good at that. And some of you are so good that they wouldn't hire you to be a judge except under maybe Idi Amen in the old days in Uganda or something. So those are the right places. Put you on the bench and say yes, off with their heads or whatever. Um, So you don't want to use it to judge yourself. All right, so sit quietly, come back to your breath. And then there are three directions. The first direction of forgiveness, I'll do this out loud as a guided practice and you can reflect. There are many ways in which I have hurt and harmed others, knowingly or unknowingly. We've all betrayed people, caused them pain and suffering. Every one of us has. Abandoned them, betrayed them. I remember these now. And you can feel the pain you still carry. And then you can pick one for this afternoon, particularly to ask forgiveness.
in the way that I've hurt or harmed you, betrayed you, abandoned you, caused you suffering, out of my own confusion and fear, out of my own pain or anger or hurt. In this moment, I ask your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. May I be forgiven. And sense that you can be forgiven. May I be forgiven. And then the second direction of forgiveness is forgiveness for yourself. For what you've done and for all the ways you've betrayed yourself. There are many ways, just as I've hurt or harmed others, that I've betrayed myself, abandoned myself, caused myself harm or pain, knowingly, unknowingly. I remember these now too and feel the sorrows I carry. And again, let yourself choose a particular thing that you want to forgive yourself for. Out of all of these. And in the way that I have betrayed myself, abandoned myself, caused myself pain or hurt, out of my own confusion and fear, out of my ignorance or anger or hurt and pain. I now offer myself forgiveness. I forgive myself. I hold myself with mercy and tenderness.
I forgive myself. And take it in. You know, if you want, you can put your hand on your heart. Whatever allows you to feel that you can be forgiven. I forgive myself. I forgive myself. I hold myself with tenderness and mercy. Offer myself forgiveness. And then the third direction is to offer forgiveness to those who hurt you. There are many ways that others have hurt and harmed me, abandoned me, betrayed me, caused me pain and suffering, knowingly, unknowingly. I remember these now too and feel the sorrows I carry. Now choose one that it's time to forgive. And in the ways that you have hurt or harmed me, abandoned me, betrayed me, knowingly or unknowingly that you cause me pain suffering out of your ignorance and confusion out of your fear and anger and hurt and pain I now forgive you. I offer you forgiveness to the extent that I'm ready. To the extent that I'm ready, I forgive you.
to the extent that I'm ready, I forgive you. And feel how liberating it is, how it's possible to let go and forgive. To live with a forgiving heart. To the extent that I'm ready, I offer you forgiveness. Asking forgiveness of others, offering forgiveness to yourself, and extending forgiveness to those who harmed you. We've all been betrayed and harmed, and we all can forgive. And as we do these practices, each one, again, it might bring up its opposite, it might feel mechanical, it might or might not be easy. But they all point to a vast possibility of human freedom, no matter the circumstance of our life. And I saw it with my friend and teacher, Gosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, all 19 members of his family were killed. He went around teaching, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient eternal law. In spite of all that happened, that was what he did. Nominated for the Nobel Prize a number of times, he led people back to their villages and towns, singing, chanting the chants of loving kindness and forgiveness. So this is the way you reclaim your life. So the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. The sense that we're part of some vast mystery. And human incarnation is a really wild thing, you know. I don't know how you got in there. One hole, one hole at the end of the body into which you stuff dead plants and animals and grind them up with these bones that hang down, you know. And, these weird orbs that you look out of and, you know, ambulate by falling one direction, catch yourself, and then you fall the other direction, these bipedal things. It's weird. Wiggly things at the end with little bits of claws and a vestigial tail. I mean, come on. You know, if you want to look really at it, pay attention the next time you're making love. 
It's a great thing to do. It's quite wonderful. But it's weird. It is. I mean, come on, no matter what kind of love you make, it's a strange thing. And then the fact that sometimes a little squirt here and a little egg somewhere there, and a new person. I mean, this is completely wild. How did that happen? You know? So my teacher, Ajahn Chah, practiced as a monk in the jungles and forests for about 10 years doing deep meditation trainings of concentration and samadhi and lights. And, you know, he had all the difficulties that one would have. In those days, there were tigers, and certainly still lots of snakes and things like that, and the inner difficulties of his own fears. But as he was very determined, he had all these wonderful insights and great meditations. And he went to another Ajahn, the most famous teacher of the time, bowed and said, I want to tell you about my meditation, I want some advice. Bowed and paid his respects. And the master listened to him. And he said, Cha, you missed the point. Yes, you dissolve your body in light and you had samadhi experiences and you had, you know, grief and you had all these experiences. He said, those are just experiences. It's like being in the movies. There's a war movie and a romantic comedy and a documentary, you know, and a a child's movie and so forth. He said, you've seen a lot of good movies, but the only real question is to whom do they happen? Otherwise, you're just lost in the movies. Turn back and look at the projector, look at the light. And his words was, become the one who knows. Instead of identifying with all the content or even the changing process, this is that third step of mindfulness, which looks back at awareness itself and become the knowing itself become the awareness that who you are is loving awareness spirit was born into this body it will die when you die it will leave and anybody who sat with a number of people dying it's like it's very clear because they'll drift out and I've had all these out of the body experiences and things and they'll describe it oh yeah floating coming back ocean of light or whatever you're not your body I was sitting with one of our teachers Marlene Jones she had heart failure and a um, long time before the paramedics got there. So she was brought to the hospital, iced, put into a coma, deliberately for a while, brought back, flatline, you know, because 15, 20 minutes of no oxygen. No response. Touch her, speak to her, you know, put the monitors on her, nothing. So after about a week, sitting with her daughter and family and so forth, all right, it's time to unplug her. And I held her hand, did a little chanting, and I said, Barlene, I'm really going to miss you. You're a wonderful woman and a wonderful teacher, you know, and I hope we have a lot more years together. But you, you died too quickly. Come on. And the least you could do is give a sign, you know, now or later, you know, something, so we know you're all right. And the minute I said that, two tears rolled down her cheeks. They had gotten nothing for a week in every way of trying to stimulate her brain, her body, but I said that, and the two tears rolled down her cheeks. And then she died, you know, not many minutes after that. So, and this, you know, this is one of many stories I could tell. Um, you're not your body. You rent it, you know, from Avis or something like that, and you have to turn it back in. Mileage is over, okay, time enough. Um, you're certainly not your thoughts, I hope not, given the way most people's mind goes. 
If you're not your feelings, because they're always changing. So who are you? Well, maybe I'm the awareness. Maybe I'm in the witness. But then the interesting thing is you look and you discover there's awareness, but it's not attached to a self. You can't find yourself in there. Who am I? Neuroscience. This is Time Magazine's neuroscience issue. It said, after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there's no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. That's the neuroscientist version of it. Which means that the idea of self is an idea. It's constructed by our thoughts and our identification. But when you look into the mirror, and you can try this, for some people it's interesting, you notice you've aged, right? And your body doesn't look like it used to. I mean, in my case, it loses its fur, you know, it wrinkles. Our teacher, Wes Nisker here, who's sort of a humorist, says the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard, you know. But it, I mean, it does all these weird things, Right? But the thing that's very common is you don't necessarily feel older. You know that experience? Okay, I've aged, but I don't feel that. And that's because it's only your body that's aging. But the awareness that's looking says, hmm, how are we doing in this incarnation? Well, it looks older. I don't feel any older. That the awareness itself exists outside of time. It's not in time. The body's temporal and it goes from little to medium to big and then it shrinks again and so forth. That's what that's what plants and trees and mammals do. But the awareness is timeless. And so we are creatures of paradox because we have these bodies, but they're not who we are. And yet you have to honor them. Be grateful because you are made of st- for you are made of stars. Be humble for you're made of mud. This is a Serbian proverb. Ramdas puts it this way. He says, remember your Buddha nature and your zip code, right? That you need both, or your social security number. You know, that you have to live in these two worlds, the world of eternity, which is true, from which you come, and also this human incarnation. And you need to honor both in this paradox. And we all know this again. I talked about, you know, when you're walking in the mountains or listening to an amazing piece of music or sitting with someone who dies or making love, you remember that you're not this small sense of self. And as this sense of self, which is fluid, starts to open in meditation, and you become more and more able to become the awareness that witnesses things and then you turn back and you realize there isn't even someone there. There's just awareness. This is what you are. You are loving awareness. Joy comes, luminosity in Buddhist psychology. There's, because they're list makers, there's 20 kinds of joy. Thrilling joy and tingling joy and, you know, dissolving into light joy and, you know, all these great kinds and 18 kinds of silence, right? And, um, Instead of that loyalty to your suffering, identity begins to shift and you become, you rest more in the timeless. And you see the play of life. And you're comfortable with mystery because it is mysterious, no matter what any scientist might say. The best scientists, like Einstein, they all say it's all mystery. Um, and you become what's the phrase? Um, The phrase is the wisdom of insecurity. You become wise enough to see that you don't have to hold on to things. It's like Somerset Maugham, you know, who wrote 
all these celebrated novels and somebody, or he's talking about it, he said there are three rules for writing the great English novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are, right? <laughs> and that's pretty much our predicament. And from this, there comes an ease and a graciousness and a joy, like Gary Snyder saying, don't feel guilty. Being angry or guilty is not what the world needs. It needs a sense that you love it and that it's part of you and that you're connected. That's the power that will save it. Um, And so there starts to grow a a sense of joy. Um, Yeah. Here, um, instructions from the Buddha. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. Because your unhappiness, your depression and your fear does not help those other people. Actually, the spirit that you bring... You know, whether you go into San Quentin prison or whether you go up to help, you know, in the fire area or whether you serve in a thousand other ways. If you go in and you're moping and depressed and upset and so forth, it doesn't help anybody. Um, And that's one of the beautiful things. There's a great book published last year. I think it's called The Book of Joy. Um, It's a dialogue between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, and they laugh a lot, and it's this whole week-long dialogue. They say, how can you have lived through so much suffering in South Africa and apartheid and Tibet and the occupation and the loss of, you know, your temples? And Dalai Lama says, listen, they've taken so much from me. They've taken the temples and our ability to practice our religion and their, you know, um, all the sense of what was sacred in our culture. Why should I let them take my happiness? So you don't allow that to colonize your heart in, in some very deep and important way. As Guillaume Apollinaire says, um, now and then it's good to pause in your pursuit of happiness and just be happy. It's, it's like the Buddha's invitation. And this from Laurie Chapman, who's sort of her meditation instructions. I like nothing more in the world than sitting on my ass doing nothing. And it's not my fault that I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much, but if you could sit on this baby for two minutes, you'd realize that getting up off this ass would be a crime against nature. Right? And so the idea in meditation isn't, you know, to make it a grim duty. Okay, now I go to the gym and I work out and now I've got to meditate and It's actually to find a way that nourishes you, even if it's for three minutes a day that brings a sense of well-being, rest, tending yourself, capacity to be present, and then more than that, becoming the witness, becoming the loving awareness that says, hmm, today has joy and sorrow. Let me be the loving witness of it all. And there are all kinds of beautiful practices that increase joy. Um, just as there's a compassion practice or an equanimity practice, there's a joy practice. It's spelled out one version of it in that book that I held up. Um, And the way you start is to envision, you might start with another person that you care about, to picture their best adventure as a young child or to do it in yourself. To think back that day, 
one of your best adventures, your most joyful day, tickled, laughing, rolling around in the grass, you know, playing tag, enjoying being with others and so forth. And think about all of the, you know, the best and most wonderful image of uh, your child, or uh, I like to start it where you picture somebody else you care about. And imagine their best day as a young child. And how they were, because there's a, there's a youthful spirit. I mean, raccoons and otters and baby chimpanzees, they all like to play when they're little, you know. Um, they delight in life. And that was born in you too. Even if you had a very difficult childhood, which some of you clearly did, there were moments where you could do that. And I've been in refugee camps and these kids make little cars out of old, um, you know, out of cans of, of milk that, you know, were brought by the UN or something and they're an empty can and they put a couple of them on a stick and go racing around. Kids are kids. And there's a child of the spirit in every single person, sometimes buried in there a bit. And the joy practice begins to see that in each person you meet and begin to invite, may that joy increase, may their happiness grow. Um, And more and more you begin to allow yourself to kind of tune yourself to well-being. And of course you'll have people who say, well, Uh, This isn't possible for me, you know, my suffering is too great, and so forth. Mm. But if you see it in them, then sometimes they start to see it in themselves, you know. So this is another of the many possibilities in Buddhist psychology, who you really are is not limited to your history. Um, Consciousness is actually free to create itself. And another Ramdas story, just because it's kind of fun to tell them. He was going to come back from India. He actually wanted to stay for much longer with his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and practicing and so forth. And then at some point, his guru or his teacher said, now it's time for you to go back and share this with people in America. And Ramdas thought about it. He said, you know, I feel so uncooked and I feel really impure and I know about my imperfections and I think I should practice a while longer before I go and try and teach anybody else. And his guru looked at him and got up off the little seat where he was kind of the wooden bench where he sat. And he took a couple minutes and he walked over to Ramdas and he looked him up and down and he turned around the side, looked him up and down, went around the back and looked him up and down around that side. Looked him and spent a long time looking at him and he sat back down and he peered into his eyes and he said, I see no imperfections. And there's something in India that's called the glance of mercy where a teacher looks at you with so much affection and love that it just rewires your brain, it just changes your life because they see something that's so beautiful in you that you haven't let yourself know that you carry. I see no imperfections. And so this, you know, all the trainings, yes, we can direct ourselves toward more love or compassion or things as was talked about, healthier states of mind. But even those are not the deep level. 
The real level is that you are free and you've always been free. And that's what's true. And then you get to create with this amazing human incarnation what you will, what you will do. So one more principle of central principles. There's so many things we could do. Um, the last one before we do a, um, a meditation and a ritual to end the day. And this is to talk about the power of intention or cause and effect, sometimes talked about karma, um, which is more than anything else a description, a psychological description of how the world works. If you're really angry and you treat the world with anger, guess what will come back to you? Anger. Other people will. If you're really loving and you treat the world lovingly, guess what will start to come back to you much more anyway is love. It just works that way. Um, And it's the key to it is intention. If you get in your car and you crash through your neighbor's fence into their living room because you are really pissed that they cut down all the trees, right? those great old trees, right on your, the lot line between yours and theirs, and then they let their dog run on your lawn and poop on your lawn and they you know, blast loud music and you hate your neighbor and you get overcome with it and you drive your car through the hedge and into their house, the little blue and, you know, police lights will come and they'll haul you away for, you know, destruction of property and illegal things and lock you up. Now, if you get in your car and you cash through their fence and their hedge into the living room because your accelerator stuck, bad model and you can't, you know, stop it, um, exactly the same activity. You're in your car, you crash through the hedge and the fence, you crash into their living room, the only difference is your intention. And that intention then is, oh, you know, he may be upset, but I'm so sorry, I'm sorry for you, we have to call the insurance, yes, let's call people to get it fixed. They don't call the police about it, like you've done something wrong. The source of karma is the intention behind your actions. And that's how the world treats you and how it will respond. So to understand intention, is extremely important in Buddhist psychology. And there are two forms, short-term and long-term intention. Short-term intention comes with a great practice called the mindful pause. You're in the middle of a little conflict with someone, or you're going to return a text or an email or a, you know, respond to somebody, or you're, you know, in a meeting or whatever, and you're about to react and get back at somebody and before you do anything you take a breath or two and you pause the mindful pause and then you ask yourself what's my best intention or what's my highest intention and there you are let's take a couple since some of you are in a relationship and you're having a little conflict that could happen in your marriage or in your life and normally when somebody says something that makes that triggers us, we often will want to respond to say how we're right, how they're wrong, get even, show you know what we know or something like that. You take a breath, you do the little mindful pause, and instead of doing that, you say, all right, what's my best intention? 
Well, it's not to get even. It's not to show that I'm right. It's really to connect or to love this person or to, to, you know, to open in some other way to understand. And the minute you ask, what's my best intention? And usually it comes very clearly. The tone of your voice changes, what you have to say. Even if you read that text you're about to send, and okay, you pause before you press send. You're upset with that person. What's my best intention? Oh, I think I need to change the language a little bit. Let me go back and edit that thing or that email, you know, and make the tone more appreciative or more understanding or more more inviting of learning rather than being right. And people actually appreciate that a lot. It's like when I said about anger. If you say to somebody, I'm angry at you, you get a particular response. But if you pay attention and notice that underneath your anger you feel hurt or you feel afraid or you feel you know, worried or disrespected, and you can say, I'm afraid, I'm worried about this, or I feel hurt. They listen to you better. They want to hear what you have to say. So you pause in the text, what's my highest intention? Oh yeah, I'm going to change this a little. Because my intention is really to connect or to love or whatever your intention is. And it changes everything. You don't even change very many words. But the tone and the intention creates a very different karma. You know what I'm saying? So this is a really, really useful practice. Now in another form, there is long-term intention. So Viktor Frankl, who was the founder of logotherapy, he was in the concentration camps in the Second World War, and he said that the the people who survived most successfully were those who had a sense of meaning and a deep intention for their life. And so what this means is you can, at some point, quiet yourself and sit and try to sense an inner direction of the values for your life. And sometimes in the Buddhist tradition, this is, um, you know, described as, um, as you reflect, taking the vows toward awakening. They're bodhisattva vows, sentient beings are numberless. That's how they start the sitting in a Zen monastery. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. You know, desires are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them all. These kind of vows. Little vows like that. Um, (laughs) Dalai Lama says them in the morning when he wakes up the ones from... Shantideva, may I um, be a bridge, a raft, a boat for all who need to cross the flood? May I be medicine for the sick? May I be food for the hungry? May I be a lamp for those in darkness? May I be a resting place for the weary? And may I do this for beings everywhere as long as earth and sky and galaxies exist until we all awaken together. Some little vow like that, right? Um, but of course there are, um, there are modern versions of it. And I love to read Diane Ackerman, poet and friend, her school prayer version where she writes, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, 
I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. And if we take time to quiet ourselves and listen, there's a kind of inner nobility to most human beings. And you can start to listen to, if I were to make my own vows, what would they be? You know, what would this be like? Because then when you go through times in your life of problems and struggles or when the world around you is having a hard time, you can pause and you can say, well, what really matters to me? You know, it's like setting the compass of your heart. And sometimes it's an activist. So this is Barbara Widener who founded Grandmothers for Peace. She says, I began to question what kind of world am I leaving for my grandchildren? So I got a sign, a grandmother for peace, and stood on the street corners. And then after a year, I joined others kneeling as a human barrier at a munitions factory. I was taken to prison, strip searched, thrown into a cell. Something happened to me. I realized they couldn't do anything more. I was free. And now Barbara and her organization, Grandmothers for Peace, works in dozens of countries around the world. And that's the activist side. That's a really beautiful thing. You know, Thomas Jefferson said, one person with courage is a majority. If one person stands up with that kind of courage, again, it's like Aung San Suu Kyi or or, uh, Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or Gandhi or, you know, I think of uh, Kenya and... um, I'm blocking on her name, I'll think of it in a second, who won the Nobel Prize for planting trees. Um, And uh, she was thrown in prison. I think you need to get thrown in prison to win the Nobel Peace Prize. It's sort of part of your curriculum. But anyway, and she started by planting trees along the desert and for people whose villages were um, losing water and life and so forth. In the end, um, ended up planting 51 million trees in in Kenya. So you do it a step at a time. And it's not that you do it in some kind of heroic, special way. You know, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. One of the weird things you notice if you take that vow is that the people around you don't want to be saved by you, like the ones in your family. They're not interested in you saving them. So it has to mean something different than that. And what it means is that you dedicate your life, you quiet yourself, and you dedicate your life to life itself in your own version and in your own way. And then, no matter what happens, you get quiet and you say, what is my deepest vow? What is the thing that most matters to me? For some people, it's just as simple as, I vow to be kind. And um, it won't go well all the time, you know, um, Somebody, where's my thing from Thomas Merton? Yeah, it won't go well. Somebody said, for somebody who's truly um, committed to changing the world nonviolently, you never need weapons, but you may need bail. 
right? So this from Thomas Merton, who was responding to a young activist, and we get lots of activists that come here, often burned out activists, because you can't sustain it just on anger over the years. And he wrote, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not at times bringing about its opposite. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so here's the secret. Everybody's waiting for the secret at the end of the day, right? The secret is to act well without attachment to the fruits of the action. Because you don't get to determine how it will turn out. To act well without attachment to the results and the fruits. You can learn from the results, you can tune yourself, but in the end, that's not what's given to you. What's given to you is to act from your deepest values and from your great love and your care. And it can be small things as well as large, you know? A gesture, a smile. Um, After the Haiti earthquake, um, I was reading this thing about from the um, American Red Cross... And one of the most touching things that came in, all these millions of dollars, was an envelope with $14.60 from a homeless shelter in Baltimore with a little note that said, we're worried about our brothers and sisters on the streets of Haiti. You know, it can be just just that moment, just that gesture. That can change somebody's life as much as anything else that you care about. And in Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You quiet the mind, open the heart, become loving awareness in whatever way you can. And then you get up to the garden of the world and you sweep, not because you're supposed to, but because it's your garden and it's your place. And you go back and forth between these, these two. Hmm. Here we are in the realm of mystery. You come to the temple and it's a reminder of this. You watch the sun. Actually, the sun doesn't move, but the earth turns. But it looks like the sun is moving to the west now over the day. The air fortunately got clearer, at least for a time. Hopefully the fires are getting contained a little bit more. And you are here, born into the human realm with unbearable beauty and an ocean of tears. And this is it. This is how it is. And the beautiful thing is that it's possible to awaken in this midst, all the science and neuroscience shows it, to heal, to transform, to live with a kind of nobility and dignity, to offer that to others and to to offer it to the world. Um, there was a passage I read not so long ago in one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism China banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission (laughs) according to a statement issued by the state administration for religious affairs the law which went into effect a few years ago strictly stipulates 
the procedures by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. Right. So that's one approach to the mystery of life, right? Not necessarily a successful one. But there it is. Hmm. But there's another possibility. And all of these teachings of mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness, joy, equanimity, forgiveness, we've done a lot today. They're really all invitations to return to that original goodness, to express it, to, to, to know it, to discover it in yourself and transform in some beautiful way. I guess, let's see, what do I want to read at the end before we do our little ritual? Hmm. I have two poems. They're both kind of wonderful. So this is from Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian poet, wonderful poet, called Wandering Around at Albuquerque Airport Terminal. After learning my flight was delayed four hours, I heard the announcement If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, but since gate 4A was my own gate, I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her her flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke haltingly, Shudoa, Shubitak, Habibiti, Stani, Stani The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call and tell him. We called her son. I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would sit with her southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. And then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. And then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the people at the gate. To my amazement, not a single person declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the young man from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, We were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out free beverages and the flight attendants served us apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, we'd been holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant always stay rooted somewhere. 
And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person at this gate, once the crying of confusion had stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They all took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other people. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. And there's something so both tender and revolutionary in that poem for these times outwardly in our world that's troubled. And we become the carriers like that person on the boat that Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about. We become the carriers of our best intention and in our actions, in our voice, to not let the fires and the floods and the fears and confusion take over your heart to be that person that carries that wisdom. So with that, I'd like us to do a little ritual to end. Um, Helga has, several people do, um, these little red cords, if you'd give me one, and then pass clumps around the room, and when you get... um, clump of blessing cords. We're going to make them. Don't do anything with it yet. Take one and then pass it on to other people seated near you so they get some. And pretty soon everybody will have one. And while you do, I will explain about this. The sacred cord is used all across Asia from Afghanistan all the way to Japan um, in rituals, in weddings, and in celebrations and healing practices and so forth because it's the symbol of a thread that connects all life, that we're woven together, what did Martin Luther King said, in a single garment of destiny, right? That we're all woven together in the mystery of life. Um, We are life expressing itself in our form. So who doesn't have yet? Pretty much everybody's got. Now, the reason that these are colored, this reddish color, is they're considered one thread from the robe of a monk or a nun. Basically, if you choose to wear them around your wrist or your neck, I have one that I've been wearing for a long time from Dalai Lama. Um, It's like these are your robes and you go into the marketplace and your real home is in the temple. You're kind of like a monk or nun in drag, right? Um, and you go in the marketplace wearing your secret robes and you pretend you're an ordinary person, but actually your home is in the, his home in the infinite and in the vastness and in your home is in loving awareness. Um, and to make these, they're also called protection cords. I was doing this ritual with a very famous lama at one point and somebody said, well, what exactly do these protect you from? And he said, well, yourself, of course, the main protection that human beings need. (laughs) So to make them or activate them, we have to tie three knots into them in succession. So hold them up. And the first knot is called the knot of refuge. For those who are Buddhist, it means refuge in Buddha, which is to see the Buddha in every being you meet. Refuge in Dharma, which means truth and all the practices that lead you to freedom and truth. 
and refuge in Sangha or community, that we never do it alone, that every moment of your practice and all the development and uh, awakening that happens affects your friends and your family and community and spreads out across the world. It's never done in isolation. But for some who are not Buddhists, um, the knot of refuge is to take refuge in that which is sacred or holy by whatever name you give it, all different names and traditions, and to realize that by taking this refuge, you remember as a refuge that within you is this possibility of living with nobility and freedom and care. So reflect on a, for a moment on that which is sacred or holy or which is a refuge for you. And when you're ready, tie a knot into the center of the cord, which is your reminder to live your life connected to this sense of the sacred. Then there's a second knot to tie into the cord. And this is the knot of compassion. And it is in your own way a vow to minimize harm to yourself and others. You could call it a reverence for life, for your own life and the life of others. To not cause harm through your speech and actions as best you can. And to hold yourself and other beings with compassion. And so reflect on your own dedication or your own vow, whatever is true to you, to live in a way that does not harm yourself and does not cause harm to others and what that means to you. And when you're ready, tie the second knot into the cord, which is a reminder of this practice and commitment to compassion. And the third knot will require a little bit more reflection on your part. If you were to set an intention for your life, the long-term intention, some people make it very simple. I vow to be kind. 
others it might be more complex. But take a minute or two to reflect on what your highest or best intention might be. Like Diane Ackerman's beautiful poem, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature and a healer of misery, messenger of wonder, architect of peace. That's her poetic version. But for you, if you were to have two or three sentences or one of what is your heart's deepest intention, And when you're ready, tie the third knot in your cord, which is a reaffirmation of this vow or this intention. And I would recommend that just as we end, when we end, that you maybe write it down. It's very useful to have put it on paper. If you wish. Put it in your smartphone. (laughs) Sometimes when we do this, I, if we have more time, I'll take the time and invite people to actually read it to the person next to them.
Because to say it out loud is a very beautiful thing and to have someone else read theirs. But I would like to ask us to do something else as you finish this up. And that is if you want to wear your blessing cord, if you want to wear it on your wrist, you can wrap it around two or three times and let the ends hang down a few times. If you want to wear it around your neck, put it around the back of your neck and let the two ends hang down. Don't tie it yet. And then, should you choose to do this, you can turn, even for a little while, and you can take it off. You can turn to the person sitting next to you now, and they'll tie yours on and offer you some blessing, maybe silently or with a few words, and then you tie theirs on. And, they, um, and you can offer them a little blessing. So turn to a person next to you or near you. You can do that, or behind you and tie on their protection cord. You can make three if you want. You find somebody. Thank you. Kind of nice to give a little blessing to another person, isn't it? And they need it. You know they need it. So now as you finish up, it's five o'clock and you've been basically patient and well-behaved today, which I appreciate, considering the state of the world. It's not always, you know, what you get. And more than that, I hope that these teachings, which really opened a window or opened the treasury to give you a little bit of the principles of Buddhist psychology... Um, More than anything, I hope they reminded you of what you already know. It's not like they're all that new, that somewhere in your heart you already understand this. Whether you're a healer or a business person, an educator, an artist, or whatever your work is, a scientist, you also can understand that these are universal principles for human well-being and human happiness. A poet who writes... Sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance. And rain shares its divine melancholy. 
The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. It's time to pay attention. It's time to listen deeply. It's time to care in the ways that we really want to do and that our culture and speed somehow takes us away from. Um, And the coming to the temple for a day as you have, those who are new here particularly welcome you and you're welcome to come back all kinds of other programs and trainings. Those of you who are some of our old friends for a long time, it's a pleasure to share the day. Um, May you carry what's been of benefit out to the world. And let's just do one minute of meditation. Last moments. Let yourself vision from your stillness and presence that you can extend loving kindness and care out across the world, out from this room like a a beacon in every direction, like a lighthouse of loving kindness and care. so that all that we've done today becomes a source of illumination, care and kindness that spreads across the world to everyone you touch and all whom they touch, visible and invisible. May they all be held in great loving kindness, everyone. And even the ones that are difficult, may their hearts too find peace. May they too be free from hatred and fear. May all beings benefit from the transformation and care and the seeds of goodness that we are able to offer and plant in this world. It's been a pleasure. I thank you. Um, Travel safe. You know, may your friends and other parts of the counties nearby be safe and protected. 
and um, please come back again. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.